Welcome to Living the Questions, a podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. Thank you for joining us. Here on Living the Questions, we wrestle. We wrestle with life's dilemmas, we wrestle with current events, and we wrestle with what it means to live lives of integrity. We hope that you find some community, some comfort, and some hope in this time together. To learn more about our congregation, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. Welcome, friends, to our podcast for this week. The question that we are going to dive into together is, how can we listen deeply to stories that contradict the ones we have been taught? How can we listen deeply to stories that contradict the ones we've been taught? And this could mean a lot of things and go a lot of places, but specifically the reflection that I want to invite us into this week is to think about the stories we have been taught around what it means that the United States and so many places um, are founded on the theft of land and the theft of resources from indigenous people. And so for us to consider together the stories that we have been taught about indigenous people in what's now the United States and what it means for them and what it means for those of us who are not indigenous that this country was so founded in settler colonialism and to to think about what it actually requires of us to open our minds and hearts and bodies and spirits to different stories, to different understandings, to different ways of approaching the, the, the narratives around indigenous people in the United States. So to get started, we're going to talk about the way that this question is showing up in the news. How is this question showing up in current events? And how can this question help us process what's happening in those current events? And what I want to talk about this week as it relates to this question, right, this question of how can we listen deeply to stories that contradict the ones that we have been taught or told, um, is that I want to talk about the stories that we are told and that we tell ourselves and that we tell each other about wildland fires and their management. And specifically, I want to talk about um, the ways that we talk about and hear about and learn about um, wildland fire management in California right now that um, the wildland fires in California and on the West Coast have become this really politicized flashpoint. And it seems like in the ways that we talk about the causes of those wildland fires, um, there's sort of one of two stories 
that we tell ourselves and each other about what it means um, to have these kind of really historic, devastating, out of control wildland fires. And it seems to me at least that either stronger prevailing winds, all those sorts of things, that all of those are the factors that are driving these historic devastating fires. Or you uh, talk about how the culprit is like liberal forest mismanagement and the fact that we can't harvest timber like we used to and that that's the real problem. Like that's what's driving these historic and devastating wildland fires. And so, right, there's just this sort of like back and forth and talking past in terms of the story that somebody, whether it's you or the media or a politician, is telling about what it means to have these historic wildland fires and the devastation that they're bringing to people um, in California, in Oregon and Washington and across our country. And I think that this question of how can we listen deeply to stories that contradict the ones we've been taught, for me, it's showing up in this question of what is the story that not only contradicts, but complicates both of those narratives around why we have these devastating fires in California. And um, earlier this week on All Things Considered, they interviewed a professor from Chico State in California um, who specializes in indigenous fire practices um, and indigenous burning that was part of forest management in California um, prior to European settlement. And you believe that climate change is the culprit and you talk about the ways that warmer temperatures drier summers, it it introduces this complicating story that suggests that um, climate change alone is not fully responsible for these devastating fires. That the ways we have managed and failed to manage and failed to manage and continue to fail to manage, um, Forests, I think especially at the federal level, for many years, is is part of what's driving the, the devastating nature of these fires. And he talked about um, how indigenous burning practices were outlawed by white and European settlers in California, and that the ways that these burning practices managed the ecosystems helped create conditions that meant that when there were fires, that they were not as devastating as the ones that we're currently seeing. And that in fact, um, right, indigenous Californians were persecuted and even killed um, because they insisted on trying to continue their indigenous burning practices. And so 
when I heard that story and that perspective on land and fire management, it was a reminder that sometimes the stories that we feel like are part of this back and forth in our political climate and our media climate today are are actually both, right, both like a liberal view and a conservative view are both founded in settler colonialism, in a settler mindset, in the, you know, the white colonial mindset. And that in order to really make a shift, in order to really get to the root of what is happening, um, whether it's devastating wildland fires or some other problem that we are trying to solve together, that if we're, if we're really listening deeply, if we're really engaging that, um, then we need to be listening for a story that, um, that is different, that is at times contradictory um, to the ones that we tell ourselves about whose fault it is that something is happening. And that, you know, for folks like me who are not Indigenous, who are white, figuring out how to own the ways that our version of the story needs to be contradicted, right? Needs to be made more complicated, needs to be changed and shifted by really engaging with um, stories and narratives from an indigenous perspective. So in preparing to ground us in our Unitarian and Universalist and Unitarian Universalist history around this question of how we can listen deeply to stories that contradict the ones we have been taught or the ones that we've always been told, um, I initially was going to invite us into a conversation and a reflection about our um, theological forebears who came uh, on the Mayflower. Um, and their relationship to the doctrine of discovery. Um, and the doctrine of discovery is a theological and geopolitical document um, that I would glibly summarize as, um, you know, saying essentially that uh, God wants you to go colonize lands and people and their souls. Um, and that the work of colonialism is God's work. And as, especially and mostly if you convert the indigenous people that you find when you engage in the work of colonization. So that is certainly part of our history as Unitarian Universalists. Um, and as I thought about, you know, our context 
here in Wyoming and in lots of other places, especially in, you know, the American West and away from the East Coast where that, you know, Puritan heritage is very present. Um, I thought it might actually be more fruitful for us to instead talk a little bit about the ways that we as Unitarian Universalists, um, and especially uh, Unitarians as part of the Transcendentalist movement, and the ways that we carry those threads through to today, right, to talk about the history of the ways that our theology around nature and around wild spaces has interacted with colonialism, with white supremacy, um, and with our, right, the, the sort of the dominant culture within Unitarian Universalism's relationship to Indigenous people. For those of you who have been around Unitarian Universalism for a little while, you know, you kind of get the sense that we are a people who are deeply engaged with nature and with the natural world as a place where we encounter the holy. Um, I think if you poll just about any Unitarian Universalist congregation, and especially one in a place like Wyoming or Colorado or something like that, the the number of people who would say that they encounter the divine on a hike or when they are, you know, kayaking on a, a glacial lake or when they are um, staring at the stars or when they are you know, fishing or rock climbing or whatever whatever it is, however you're engaging with the outdoors. Many, many, many of our people, you know, and sometimes myself included, describe ourselves as encountering the holy in wild spaces. And as a result, we consider the management of those wild spaces, I think part of our sense of how we live our Unitarian Universalist values in the world. Um, and in a place like Wyoming, right, there I go into our parking lot in a time when we're in regular time and not pandemic time, um, go into the parking lot and you will see our hybrids and they will have, you know, stickers that say public lands in public hands on them. And, and other, you know, slogans for, um, environmental stewardship and things like that. They'll have, we, you know, we have Sierra Club stickers and all kinds of stuff. So we have these um, environmental positions and you can sort of trace the line from those stickers on our, on our hybrids and our Subarus in the parking lot. Um, you can trace the line from those back to Unitarians like Ralph Waldo Emerson um, and his transcendentalist contemporary Henry David Thoreau and the kind of the theological work that they did around encountering the divine in nature. And that that theological work around right, encountering the divine in the, the kind of Right, a wild space as a space 
untouched by humanity, right? And specifically a space uncorrupted by humanity is complicated because their their thinking and their theology, their ideas around the wilderness as this sort of wild and uncorrupted place directly influenced um, thinkers and writers and early environmental activists like John Muir, um, right, one of the founders of the Sierra Club, um, in terms of this narrative, this story about wilderness as a place that is um, free of human life. When the reality is that these places that people like Thoreau and Emerson and John Muir were, you know, categorizing as wilderness were in fact lands that had been stolen from indigenous tribes, um, whether through the unfair creation of treaties or the breaking of treaties. These places that we conceive of, and by we, I mean, especially like white Unitarian Universalists and non-Indigenous Unitarian Universalists, these spaces that we conceive of as wild or empty or kind of these, this pristine wilderness, they weren't always wilderness. They were lands that were being managed and tended by indigenous people. And the scholar um, Dina Gilio Whitaker has a fantastic book called As Long as Grass Grows um, that's about the sort of the decolonization of the environmental movement that is excellent. Um, And I'll post a link in the episode description of uh, an excerpt of that book that appeared in the UU World magazine. Um, And in it, right, Julia Whitaker really talks about how um, that settler colonialist mindset shaped and continues to shape so much of our sense of what it means to be people who engage with wilderness and what it means to be people who engage with public lands. Um, And for for me, this is a, a real... Right, this is a narrative, a story that contradicts so much of what I was taught about what it means to value the environment, what it means to be an environmentalist, what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist. I grew up in Wisconsin, which is where John Muir spent a lot of his formative years, both as a child when his family emigrated from Scotland to Wisconsin and as a a young adult attending the University of Wisconsin. And so, so I really grew up just like totally steeped in this mythology about protecting the wilderness from human intervention and, um, you know, making it a place where 
we can go to sort of encounter the holy without dogma. And the more reading I have done and the more learning I have done as I've lived in you know, places like Arizona and Wyoming, where, you know, the reality is that these lands that we are seeking to protect, whether it is Winnebago lands in Wisconsin or Northern Arapaho lands in Wyoming or Diné lands in Arizona, right? That these lands that we as white folks see as ours to protect and defend somehow from, you know, interests like oil and gas or, or coal or things like that, right? We, we have a, a framework on it that ignores the truth. It ignores the truth that these lands were not wilderness. They were occupied. They were lived on. They were, you know, tended that people were managing these lands. People were engaged in, uh, like we were talking about in California, people were engaged in very advanced and serious forest management or, you know, game management and all these sorts of things. They were all happening prior to European settlement and European colonization. So to erase indigenous people from the physical landscape of the United States is is to tell a lie about our history. It's to tell a lie about what it means to protect public lands in the United States. And that, you know, as I was saying, right, like that goes against so many stories I was told both as a, you know, as a person growing up in Wisconsin whose family went camping and loved the outdoors and as a Unitarian Universalist who is told about this like really important and transformative theological heritage of people like Emerson inviting us to meet the divine in nature, right? Like that reality, that story about this erasure is in direct conflict with those stories about what it means to sort of meet God in the outdoors um, and and to protect wilderness. And so I I guess what I want to invite is especially for my listeners who are white Unitarian Universalists or non-Indigenous Unitarian Universalists, but but especially for all of us, regardless of your faith background, who are not Indigenous people, and especially in places where public land management is such a part of our lives is to invite us to really wrestle with that contradiction and to hear that right while a slogan like you know public lands and public hands on its face it's both like catchy and true we you know i, I say i'm i'm in no rush to have like more oil and gas drilling on the beautiful landscape here in Wyoming or in any other place. You know, I'm in no rush for fossil fuels to be in greater control of our lands. And I just can't help but but hear the question when I right when I hear public lands and public hands, I just can't 
help but hear the question, you know, how did those lands get in public hands to begin with? And as a person who now right, lives in the state where right, Fort Bridger and Fort Laramie are and the treaties made there and then subsequently broken, it, it's just hard to hear that and not just really feel like we're, we're, we're missing it. And that as Unitarian Universalists, Right. We have this commitment in our seventh principle to um, the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. And that that interdependent web includes both the natural environment and humanity. And not just like us as individual human beings, but other human beings who are part of this environment and that we cannot separate the people who live in an environment or who have lived in an environment from the environment itself. And that I think in, in the spirit of that seventh principle, I hear a call to engage more thoughtfully with the stories of indigenous people in the United States and what, what environmental and ecological activism looks like when it happens in accountable relationship with the, the truth about what settler colonialism has has done to to our history and to our story and to our our home in a moment we're going to hear an interview with audrey audrey is a seventh grader and part of our community here at the unitarian universalist church of cheyenne and Audrey is Indigenous. Audrey's dad is Ogallala Sioux, and we're going to hear her talk about some of her experiences with that. And I'm really grateful to Audrey for agreeing to be interviewed on this podcast, um, especially because sometimes as Unitarian Universalists, we can um, tell ourselves a story about who is inside of our four walls and who is outside of our four walls and what that means for how we engage with things like Indigenous Peoples Day or struggles for Indigenous rights and things like that. And I want to lift up Audrey's voice as a, the voice of an Indigenous Unitarian Universalist. All right, you can go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Audrey. And do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Audrey? Well, I'm 12 and I go to Johnson Junior High School. And uh, Audrey, do you want to tell us a little bit about your Indigenous heritage? Um, well, I'm Ogallala Sioux, Lakota. Uh, and I get it from my dad. Uh, and 
my dad has taught me a few things like how to like dance and how to make dream catchers and interesting stuff like that. And uh, I guess he's tried to teach me a few words, but it kind of goes well. And it's a challenge sometimes. What's challenging about it? The pronunciation Mm -hmm. is challenging because if you don't say it right, it it means a totally different thing. Yeah, language is tricky like that. What's your earliest memory of your dad talking to you about being Ogallala Sioux? Maybe when I was nine. That's when he started to teach me simple words. And I started asking more and more questions about uh, what he, he was like on the reservation and stuff. So you're... Your dad grew up on the reservation in South Dakota. In South Dakota. And what was what was it like for you to hear him talk about growing up on the reservation? It was kind of tough because um, his life is totally different from mine. Because on the reservation, uh, there are a lot more deaths and stuff, and um whenever um i talk about how many funerals i've gone to he says um well sometimes i can comp- i can't compare myself to other people because of how many people have died on the reservation due to sickness or something and uh i'm i like growing up with um my mom and knowing what uh, my native heritage is, but I just can't believe that's how it is on the reservation and how tough it is. Have you ever been to visit the reservation where your dad grew up? No, my dad wants to take me sometime. What do you think it would be like to go to go visit there? I think it would be really cool because my dad's talking about everything. And, like, what it's like to grow up there and how far away things were from his house and what he used to do since he didn't have any real toys. He would go out and find rattlesnakes and stuff. Um, but I would want to go there just to see uh, the Wounded Knee Memorial because that's a big part of my uh, tribe. Mm-hmm. Are there other things uh, about your tribe that you would want to share? Um, the Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee are mainly the biggest killings, but uh, the Wounded Knee is, I wouldn't say my favorite, but it's the better side of the story because um, when the natives were trying to just live their life on the land, they had to be moved and stuff. And so I got to hear what the story was for what happened and stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the right the story is that we the stories that most of us learn about what it means to be Indian or Native American or Indigenous, whatever word you're using. How do you feel like the stories that you have learned as part of an Indigenous community and through your dad, how do you feel like those stories are different from the ones that you hear kind of in mainstream culture? Well, for my dad, uh, he tells me a lot of stories and only a few of them I can remember, like, clearly. And uh, sometimes when uh, my friends bring up something about, like, a false assumption about what natives did and stuff, I get really upset. And so I tell them the real story and they're just like, how do you know this? And I tell them that I'm Native American and they say, oh, well, um, I guess you do know the right story. And so they, they sometimes give me pity because I am Native and I know what is happening and they just don't want to face the truth sometimes. What's that like to feel like you have to teach your friends or your peers about what it's like to be Native? It can sometimes be challenging because whenever, uh, like I said, sometimes my friends bring up something about like a Thanksgiving or something or like something else with Natives in it. And they say stuff where it's like all the Native Americans fault. And even though they were trying to be nice, they still killed a bunch of other people and it's their fault and stuff. And so me trying to have and explain that to them is more difficult than I thought it would be because I get really angry with them when they don't listen. Yeah. That seems like it would be really frustrating to feel like you're like, hey, I actually have knowledge here. <laughs> I'm. This is about me. This is not about random strangers. This is about me. Yeah. So I know that you have um, gone on like an educational experience here in Wyoming um, about the indigenous tribes here in our state and the tribes that are up on the reservation at the, on the Wind River. And so I'm curious if you, I don't know, what, what was that like, right, to sort of go and engage in this like learning experience that had been set up about the tribes here in Wyoming? I found it interesting because they, they were more like my people. Like I felt more connected with them than anyone else, even though I haven't even met them before because most of them were Native American and I felt like I was part of them. And even though we weren't from the same tribe, we're still Native American and I feel like we should always stick together. Yeah. When you say you felt more connected to them, even though you had never met them, what was, 
what was that like, right? What was that feeling of connection like? It was like, I don't want to sound cringy, but it was like love at first sight, I guess. You can be cringy. It's okay. I'm an old person, so you can be cringy with me. But like, it was when, it's like when dirt sees a jalapeno seed, they just collide and they're connected. But then even they haven't even met each other yet. Yeah. It's like the instant connection of what has happened and what you've gone through and stuff. That's such a beautiful image of dirt meeting a jalapeno seed. So as you think about growing uh, up and growing older as an indigenous person in the United States, what do you feel like you're hoping for I'm for hoping yourself that. or for for other indigenous people here? I'm hoping that I don't know, it's just it just gets better for Native Americans and indigenous people because I feel like they don't really have the best as other people that can just do what they want and like for indigenous people I want it to be more equal just because we're different doesn't mean that uh we're not the same like we're all people and we all matter yeah and as you think about your own kind of journey of learning about your your own indigenous heritage what what are you most interested to learn more about as you're kind of on your own journey of discovery I want to know my language fluently because I know a few phrases and words but that's about it right now would you want to teach the listeners any words or phrases? I can count up to 10. Do you want to show off? Sure. Do it. Waji, Numpa, Yamni, Topa, Zapta, Jakpe, Shokoga, Shagroga, Naptika, Uchemnya. If you can't hear it, Audrey just breathed a big sigh of relief at having. <laughs> At having made it through that. And then I know how to say water and dad. And my last name. Mm -hmm. But that's about it. Those seem like good words to know. What would it, what would it mean for you to be fluent in? In Sioux? Well, the language isn't as common now. So... If I'm fluent in Sioux, I could probably teach my kids and stuff. Or like um, get the language not as extinct because mm. it is fading and I just want to keep the language alive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. If there was one thing that you wish you 
could tell people or one thing that you wish people knew about what it's like to be an Indigenous person in, whether it's here in Cheyenne or in the United States more broadly, what do you wish people knew about what it's like to be an Indigenous person? I want people to know that, like, if you were me, you don't want to walk in the halls or, like, in a grocery store wondering if people are staring at you or, like, wondering what your heritage is because sometimes when they do that and they're just staring, it doesn't feel so good. But, like, if they just ask, it's better. But... I don't know, just being Indigenous is a little scary, but it's mainly fun. Well, thank you, Audrey, for agreeing to sit down and chat for a little bit. Is there anything else you want listeners to know either about you or about your heritage or about just what it's like to be you? Not really. It's good. You feel like you got it captured at all. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of gratitude for Audrey um, for that conversation. And if you are looking to engage further as a, a non-Indigenous person who's a Unitarian Universalist or just a person who wants to learn more There are a number of excellent resources that I would encourage you to engage with, and they include a number of books, um, uh, including An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, which also has a Young Readers Edition, which is excellent. Um, I would uh, also invite you to read the Dina Gilio Whitaker book, As Long as Grass Grows, that I talked about earlier. Um, If you are in, you know, what you would think of as the American West, um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, an Indian History of the American West by D. Brown is also excellent. Um, and I'll, I'll post links to these resources in the episode description. Um, we put together this episode in sort of honor of Indigenous Peoples Day. But this work, this engagement, this decolonization of Unitarian Universalism and of our, our own minds and hearts, this is work that should be happening every day, all year round. So I look forward to continuing the conversation and continuing to engage and continuing to see what is possible when we can listen deeply to stories that contradict the ones that we've been taught um, and then take action to tell a different story, to weave a different narrative um, and to, uh, to center the experiences of indigenous people and to decenter colonialism. Thank you for listening. Your presence matters to us. Whether you are here in Cheyenne or across the globe, we are grateful that you would spend this time with us. If you'd like to connect more with our community, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. I'm the Reverend Hannah Roberts Vilnave, and on behalf of a grateful community, thank you. We'll see you soon.